8.03 on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Accurate Dealers. Experience a Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Accurate dealer today. We are in Hour 3 of the program. Randy Janda is going to join us in just a moment here to kick off Hour 3. Hour 3 is brought to you by Campbell & Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Trust the expertise of Campbell & Pound. Visit them on the internet at campbell-pound.com today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. I'm watching NHL highlights in the Kintech studio right now. Question for you before we get to Randeep. What are worse, the Vegas Golden Knights' gold helmets or the Los Angeles Kings' silver helmets? Um, Chrome all, helmets? All of the above. They're terrible, right? I hate them. People like them, though. Some Why? people like them. I think they look ridiculous. I, I don't under... What's the purpose behind this? I don't know. Flashy? It looks like they look like Christmas ornaments. I could I deal with the Kings one, but the Golden Knights no. one is too much. No, no, no. How can you deal with can one and not the, the other? It's the same yeah. thing. The same I, thing. I, I find They're the Golden Knights even, even brighter. They should only be allowed to wear those for their home games. If you want to subject your fans to those those helmets, That's fine, true. but don't bring them on the road. That's, That's true. true. That's yeah. true. Because Vegas did it at home yesterday. It's like the uh, Dallas Stars' neon uniforms. Oh, God. It's the too worst. much. Too much. too much. Anyway, let's go to the phone I got used then. to neon, though, with the Seahawks. I don't I like the Color the... Rush Seahawks ones. Well, well, we're not talking about the Color Rush ones. We're talking Wait, about just ne- neon being part of their... <laughs> it's too much. It's too much neon. Yeah. Who brought neon back? Okay, let's go to the phone lines. Uh, <laughs> Randy Janda joins us now on the Alfred and Breff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Randy. How are you? What's going on, boys? Are we having a helmet talk this morning? Yeah, a little bit of helmet talk. You know, we, the All talk right. we were having at the break was... Uh, Connor Bedard, not lacking in confidence. Uh, He played well. It was great. And I know we're starting with the other team, not the Canucks here. But I do want to point out that I thought it was um, rather interesting to watch the young man just casually call his own penalties throughout the game yesterday. That should have been a trip on on PD. I think think what happened was they gave him the benefit of the doubt on the Miller one because I didn't think the Miller one was a penalty. Mm -hmm. And then I think the referees looked at each other and they're like, he's 18. We shouldn't let him do this. So the next time he... (laughs) The next time he tried to call his own penalty, they're like, no, son, you got to learn the hard way here. Curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, that, that JT one was like, wait a second. Is he getting like the Jordan rules already? Like, yes. is he getting the calls in year one? Um, me and Batch talked about that on air as well. That one, like JT Miller had all the right to be ticked off of that one because it felt like it was just a good stick lift. He's on the back check. And that to me was like, he's getting the superstar calls already. Relax, refs. Come on. Let's let's take it easy there. Uh, let's talk about this third line. It's become one of my favorite stories of the year. Um, how important has it been for the Canucks' success? It's been massive, right? This is a, a line that over the last seven games has brought consistency on two fronts. One is the territorial advantage in, in a hockey game where, you know, going back to even the last within the last five years, I think it's fair to say even when Vegas didn't win the Cup, they were kind of a blueprint of how to build out your team a little bit. You go obviously with, you know, a top six that is strong, but the way that they played in their bottom six was they'd win the territorial advantage and the Vancouver Canucks for once have a a line like that, where at the very least, the puck is not in your own end. You're not defending and guys on top of that in the last seven games, uh, these three players combined Bluger, Garland, Joshua, 16 points and key goals as well. Key moments in the game where against Minnesota, you need that goal from Teddy Bluger. Hard work on the four-check, they get it done. Uh, Dakota Joshua goal kind of felt like a soccer goal. Uh, kind of felt like Dakota Joshua was like Olivier Giroud, where he was playing solo up himself, kind of knocks the puck down off his shoulder, 
and Connor Garland comes to support with the slap pass uh, to Dakota Joshua. It, it was actually, you know, just the way that they have chemistry now. They're able mm-hmm. to score goals very differently. Um, I, I love the way that they've played. And, you know, part of this is Teddy Bluger. He's a very cerebral player. Offensively, he's been chipping in more than maybe I thought he would at this point in the season. But defensively, so smart, so aggressive on the forecheck. But credit to both Dakota, Dakota Joshua and Connor Garland, too. Because, guys, remember, the storylines around these guys to start off the year, not great. You know, there's talk about Connor Garland being traded. Dakota Joshua... And his conditioning was a storyline. The way that they've righted both of those wrongs and now turned into the Canucks' most consistent line over the last seven games is a credit to all three of these players really stepping up. Where is the best position in the lineup for Pew Suter? Yeah, he's a versatile player. I think long-term, the best spot in the lineup for him is still going to be on that third line uh, or the fourth line, depending on you know what happens with Bluger, Garland, and, and Joshua. I like that he's able to play in the top line. I like that he's able to be aggressive on the forecheck, battling around that blue paint. Yesterday we saw him become a middle drive guy in that second period, something that Rick Tockett has been looking for is from his team for, you know, whether it's a Kuzmenko or other players. He was able to do that in spurts in the game against Chicago. But overall, guys, as a top six winger, I, I don't see the – I don't see the fit there long term. I think he could do in the meantime. I think he's somebody that can play that role when you're looking for a different look, when you're trying to change it up. Maybe he gets a little stale there with Sam Lafferty or others. But for Pugh Suter, you know, to be in that conversation is a good thing. But his ideal fit is still, you know, defensively responsible center who can give you 14 or 15 goals in a season. He's been doing that before. He's a, you know, a strong player in and that blue paint. We've seen him be trailer on the plays. Like he's got a decent shot. I just don't know if that long-term fit on the top six is, is ideal for him because, to me, I think he's better at, as a center than he is uh, as a top six winger. And you're still going to get your offense from Pew Suter. That's the thing about his game where if he plays on the third line, uh, he's still probably good for 12 to 15 goals for you. Okay, I'm just going to give you the floor here on Elias Pettersson. What do you think yeah. about his play in the last, I don't know, month or so? Yeah, so... Production-wise, if you look at it, he's still picking up his points. He gets his goal. You know, he's essentially a point-per-game player. But I think we can all agree that it hasn't been pretty in the sense that, you know, whether it's puck management, I know there's been a lot of discussion on his balance, um, his ability to maybe lose the puck at at certain points of the game. So, guys, two things on that front. I I think it's fair to say Elias hasn't been playing to the level that we saw at the beginning of the year. That's plain for everybody to see. I think a part of this is also... Um, that line where you don't have that that perfect fit right now. And Elias Pettersson is a star player. He's supposed to make everybody around him better, and I think he does that game in, game out. But it does limit your ceiling when you don't have a certain type of forward next to you. And I like Ilya Mikheyev. I think he's a fixture on that line. I think he's a guy that's going to bring the forward check. He's going to be you know opportunistic. He's going to create his own opportunities. We've seen him uh, had two, two-on-ones with Pew Suter yesterday. Couldn't finish on it, but, you know, that's kind of Ilya Mikheyev's game. He's going to score on a deflection. He might miss two or three opportunities in a game otherwise. Uh, but on that other wing, I think with Elias Pettersson, just somebody who is skilled, somebody who's going to go to the front of the net, who's going to be a little, you know, hard skill is the way I put it. So as much as I think Elias Pettersson's game to the highest level hasn't been there in the last month or so, I do think he needs a little bit of help in terms of just having a certain type of winger next to him. And, you know, if Kuzmenko was playing his game, 
if he was a guy that, you know, was playing that style of game, is just a little bit tougher to play against. We know what Kuzmenko can do in, in and around the net. 15 deflection goals last year, which is, you know, a strength of his last year. But he hasn't really been going to those areas. He hasn't won over the trust of Rick Tockett as of yet. Um, so as much as I want to focus on Pedersen's game, and there has been some inconsistencies there, definitely in the puck management side of things, uh, definitely in terms of, you know, maybe attacking the middle, uh, hasn't been as consistent as earlier on this year. I do have to look at that spot next to him to say, is he getting the support that he needs from that other winger? And I think it's fair to say he doesn't have that player alongside him yet. Um, I agree with you. Hard-nosed goal scorer is the one thing that I think this team could really, really use. Like a prime TJ Oshie would be yeah, perfect. I, mean, uh, I don't know. Easier, if we easier said him. than done to find that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, is it worth noting um, that PD and Miller are n- uh, no longer really part of the penalty kill and that Quinn Hughes has had a few games where he's not playing like 29 minutes a night? Yeah, I think it is something to note, but what Rick Tockett hasn't been shy about is that if his players aren't going, and I think a classic example of that is the Florida game where, you know, JT Miller wasn't having a good time with that Sasha Barkov matchup, so therefore he just says, all right, we're going we're gonna to kind of, you know, pull you back a little bit here. Um, two fronts. One could be because you're maybe not playing your best game or there's coaches seeing something within the game that doesn't necessarily like. The other thing is, if the other players are in a position to step up and take minutes from you and you're able to get rested a little bit and your game isn't sharp, let's, let's be honest, fatigue is a real thing. This is you know, a pairing, especially for Philip Peronik and Quinn Hughes, that has played a lot of hockey. And we were you know, kind of raving and saying, hey, man, look at 25, 26 minutes a game for Philip Peronik and Quinn Hughes. That eventually catches up to you. So uh, I think fair to say, even though the Canucks are, are doing a great job you know, through to 32 games, they've picked up 21 wins, which is, uh, for most fans, I think there's probably a very, very small minority that would have predicted something like this, if at all. Uh, it's going to catch up in, to you in terms of, you know, that play. And I think Philip Ronick on that one nothing goal was a classic example where, you know, this is a guy that was amongst the best defensemen in the league, you know, with the best pairing in the league to start off the season, but they're starting to show some rust, maybe not moving the puck as crisply as they were to start the year. So, them scaling back a little bit, I think that's that accountability factor where, hey, you're not going right now, and we do have some other options. Tyler Myers, you know, he's been able to be more consistent of late. Uh, a player like Nikita Zadorov is an addition, and you're okay with get him taking 18, 19, maybe 20 minutes in a game if your other guys aren't going. So uh, when I look at, you know, some of those players not playing on the PK, when I look at JT Miller or Quinn Hughes maybe not playing a little, you know, a little bit less than they're used to, I'm okay with that because that's the coach essentially saying, hey, you're not going, but don't worry. We got somebody else that can can do the job right now while you figure your stuff out. I feel like the Canucks um, kind of need that Christmas break. I know they've got three games beforehand, but um, we were talking earlier and we were wondering if they were going to practice today in Nashville. They are not. They're going to have yeah. another team day off. And this is just a fatigue thing, but... I think it also should be noted that the last few times that they've had a team day off, they've looked a little rusty to start their next games. Like there was the Minnesota game where Casey DeSmith kept them in it, and it was the Tampa Bay game where the Lightning scored like a minute and a half into the game. Now, the Canucks found a way to win both of those games, which is maybe a credit to the fact that they were fresh and they hadn't practiced. But 
Um, fatigue, I think Rick Tockett is learning a lot about what it means to be a West Coast team, but also that the Canucks are one of only six teams in the NHL to have already played 32 games. Nobody's played more than 32 games. So um, agree or disagree that the Canucks, even though they're playing well and they've got three games before the Christmas break and we still want them to win, could probably use a few days off. Oh, no doubt. And you talk about practices, just looking at the schedule. I don't think they'll be practicing until Boxing Day or the 27th. Uh, That's probably their next practice when they come back home. Uh, A game tomorrow against Nashville. Then you got Dallas on Thursday and travel days. Then you got a a game on Saturday against San Jose. And then you start hitting, to your point, uh, the Christmas break. So, you know, this is going to be for all that practice time they got here while they were in Vancouver, they made use of it. But in terms of fatigue and in terms of uh, you know, just the, the grind that's been going on. It's positive and negative, right? The one thing is that them coming into the season in shape, which was a huge point for Rick Tockett, that shows you how important that real conversation and that point for the coach was because, guys, if you hit the, the ground not running and you, you fall flat and you guys are, you know, trying to get in shape or they're not up to speed right off the bat, this season would have been a grind. But I think credit to the coaching staff to emphasize that at the end of the season last year to say, if you're not in shape, if you're not ready to go, this is going to be a problem. And it wasn't smooth. You know, I mentioned Dakota Joshua, um, but they still sorted it out. They still leaned in. And that shows you how important that first two-week stretch, you know, hashtag the start was. Because right now, for sure, for, for sure they're going to be, you know, um, they're going to be tired. But as Rick Tockett's mentioned, playing tired is an asset, Right. December, November are kind of those months where it really starts to feel like a grind, but this is going to be kind of the rest of the season. When we're talking about the Canucks season and what a start like this does for you is you can start refining everything else. You can start getting used to how to play tired uh, in some cases with nagging injuries. Um, so what they're able to do, what they, and they weren't able to do the last couple of years, Jason, is it felt like every single game was a game seven for them for the last two years. <laughs> yeah, because it was. This year, this year, like, I know the fan base at certain points will maybe kind of lose it and say, you know, over one game, and like, I can't believe this happened. This, this, is this team for real? Uh, the coaching staff doesn't think that way. They're able to refine here, and it gives them a slightly longer runway to experiment and, and you know, see what this team is actually made of. So it's a very different mindset from the, the last couple of years. Uh, Kuzmenko, I'm going to finish on this. Um, Played just two shifts, I think 59 seconds in the third period. Um, The lines were different. He didn't have Pew Suter on his line, uh, and the Canucks were protecting a lead, so I understand why he didn't play much. Um, But I just wonder if that's a thing where you either give him another chance with Petey. Because Tockett didn't seem to love Suter on the wing, or you put Suter back on that fourth line with Kuzmenko to at least give him some semblance of offensive talent to play with. Yeah, I think with Kuzmenko, and this is going to be a, a long, probably, conversation. We're going to be talking about this in March and April as well. Uh, the experiment with Andre Kuzmenko is, can you win over the trust from this coaching staff to you know, being in a first-round playoff match or being in a late game uh, in in the spring at some point, can you be trusted to be a top six player in the final four or five minutes of the game? And, you know, yesterday's matchup against Chicago, uh, the worst team in the NHL, he plays 11.09. And it's not necessarily that he played 11.09 
Um, to me, it's there's zeros across the board, right? And I understand playing next to Niels Oman and Sam Lafferty is not exactly the most, you know, high-end offensive production that you're going to get. And I, I get that. But overall, uh, you're not necessarily noticing him for the bad reasons, which is a good thing. Uh, I've actually saw some subtleties in his game winning, you know, board battles along the wall. The engagement level was there to a certain degree. But I think he'll be up there with Elias Pedersen at some point in time, just based on the fact that you need a little bit more firepower there. But what's going on right now is it's those hard lessons to say, hey, we want to we break some of those bad habits that you have coming over to North America at the age of 26, 27 years of age. When you're a player like Ivan Barbashev or Gabriel Landeskog that makes that switch at 16, 17, 18, it's a part of who you are. You play the North American style of game. When you make that switch at 26, 27, breaking those hard, you know, those t- tough habits are, uh, it's a very, very difficult situation uh, to do so. It takes a little bit longer. So I don't see that. I think he'll bump up there every now and then, especially if the Canucks need a goal. Uh, but I don't necessarily think the Canucks have to move him up there, especially as the team's winning. This is going to be the tough part for Kuzmenko where you're going to feel like your confidence is an all-time low. But the whole point is, do you correct your thing step-by-step? Do you correct your game step-by-step where the team trusts you in a month or two a little bit more? So I could see him there. I don't know if it's going to be consistent. I still think Sam Lafferty is going to get uh, minutes at the end of the game like he did yesterday where, you know, played sub-10 minutes, but Lafferty's playing with JT Miller, Elias Pettersson. I think with Kuzmenko, it's, it's a long road here, and it's going to be a bit of a journey. We'll probably be talking about this in February or March as well. Uh, Randeep, thanks a lot for doing this, as always. We appreciate it. Enjoy all the games this week. Uh, Jason and I are off on vacation for a couple weeks, so happy holidays, happy new year, and we'll talk again in uh, 2024. Happy holidays, boys, and uh, enjoy your vacation. I, if you stay local, that's awesome. If you uh, don't, enjoy the sun wherever you're going. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. That's Randeep yes. Janda here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet. 650. Okay, it's what we learned time on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650. If you want to win a pair of tickets to see the Canucks and the San Jose Sharks on Saturday, December 23rd, we are giving away a pair to the best what we learned submission. What did you learn over the last 72 hours in sports? Let us know. Text it into 650-650. Hashtag it WWL and put a ticket emoji into the text. Okay, I learned that uh, Tiger Woods and his son Charlie went low on Sunday, really low, at the PNC Championship, and that is the father-son or mother-son, whatever. It's the parent-child. Parent, parent yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just so go parent-child. Tiger and Charlie, it was a two-man scramble, so your scores should be good, but they shot a 61, and they finished fifth mm-hmm. in the tournament. Bernhard Long, Longer, uh, who is my f- one of my favorite athletes just because he's old and he's still the good. He's fittest man alive. He's incredible. Like, he's 66 years old, and his son won the tournament. His son's like an investment banker or something like okay. that. So he's got a good life going for himself. Yeah. Um, and also pretty good at golf. But the story was Charlie Woods, who's 14 years old, and it's hard to say just how good he is. Like, he's Tiger's son, so he is good, but he's not considered, like, he's not, like, this phenom who's, like, the best high school golfer in Florida. 
No, like he does. Okay. He's, but but he's only fourteen, right? So he'd be a freshman or something. But is he like a prodigy for like his dad, or is he just a really good golfer kid? Well, he's a pretty good golfer, and he chipped in. He had a chip in that. that looked exactly like like his whole body language is like his dad. He even had um, a moment where um, you know how Tiger was really good at stopping his swing if something distracted him. Like he had one of those, okay. and uh, apparently Tiger does all the stuff that I don't know about all the stuff, but some of the stuff that Earl did with him in that he tries to distract him, and like he tries mm. to get under his skin. Okay, and so yeah, because I'm I'm kind of, but I, I'm I'm really curious to see how good Charlie Woods is going to be, and like starting soon because it's starting to be the time, you know, in these next few years where. He might be participating in the U.S. Amateur or something, which Tiger was unbelievable at. I'm always interested by sort of unprecedented stories. Like, you know, you do sports for a living, and I'm not going to lie. Most of the time, you're like, I've seen this before. I've done this before. Like, yeah. I, know, I know how this Canucks season ends. It's disappointment. Mm -hmm. But it, so when you see something pop up that's really unique, the very least I want to pay attention to it because it's new. It's different, right? I, I don't even know what to make of this because – he, the greatest golfer that's ever lived, now has a son with the backdrop of this very, um, I guess, controversial upbringing. That's fair to, a fair way to put it. Like, Earl Woods drove Tiger, yeah. but also might have driven him a lot more than is yes, normal, yes. right? But so There might have been some, uh, to put it gently, some unintended consequences. So now you're, and now I see all these questions being posed by reporters talking mm -hmm. to Tiger about whether it's like looking in the mirror when he looks at Charlie. And I'm like, that must be a really loaded question for Tiger Woods. Yeah. Because Tiger Woods, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, has some very, very public flaws. So looking in the mirror is a very complex and quite frankly, probably confusing thing to try and digest as a dad. Mm -hmm. And then there's the kid who, you, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he will never live up to the player that his father was because nobody no. ever will. No, he won't. And he that's won't. a whole other dynamic. It's yeah. really. And then the weird part is, is it's being portrayed in this very typical structured narrative of the father-son relationship and it's the family bonding and everything. And I'm not mm. saying that doesn't exist. Like, I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, some people might've yelled at the radio when you said Tiger was the greatest golfer ever. Cause there are some people who'd be like, Jack Nicholas is still okay, the greatest well, golfer well, ever. But Jack had a son, Gary Nicholas, who was a professional, but never even came close to accomplishing yeah. what, what Jack did. But I think I just, listen, I just think it would be cool if Charlie can get to the level where he's playing on the PGA tour. Yeah, just I, to watch how it all plays. Out. I don't even look at just it from. A, watch I don't even look at out. it from a golf perspective, though. I right. just I look at it as this really fascinating dynamic of, and we're not now. I mean, well, you can see Charlie just idolizes him because he acts exactly like him on the golf course, which includes uh, a certain sense of confidence, mm -hmm. bravado. Yeah, in a fourteen-year-old. Yeah. Um, well, Tiger had that when, exactly. he was, when he was young. Right. But then Tiger went out and became, again, the best golfer that's ever lived. Mm -hmm. And I Tiger, by the way, is jacked. Yeah, I know. Like, it is. What's going on there? <laughs> is he, is he like trying to play linebacker or something? I don't know, like that? but he's, he's big. Like, and not like, he's just big. <laughs> he like, I don't is know. Jacked. I mean, sometimes you forget like how much physical toll his body has undergone. Yes. 
Like the the car accident where he was like dangerously close to potentially losing a leg, like mm-hmm. it was. I know. And now all of a sudden he's he's. I mean, it's almost like the the he's had so many redemptive arcs in his career, right? Coming back from the uh, infidelity and marriage falling yeah, apart. Yeah. I remember the DUI where he was caught on the yeah. dashboard cam, and then this awful accident. Mm-hmm. There's. I mean, we're not talking about like little dips. In life here, we're talking about... He's lucky to be alive after that car accident. He's lucky to still have his leg. Right. And, you, I mean, you know, don't want to get too dark or anything, but he's probably lucky that he's got uh, been able to have a relationship with his son where... Sure. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's a legitimate thing that's out there. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's all very interesting to me, and really not from a golf perspective. Uh, give us a moo cow on that. Moo cow, that touching father-son story. Text there in your go. What We Learns into the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're going to pick the winner for the Canucks tickets in about three minutes. So if you want to get a last minute What We Learn, include the ticket emoji. You're listening to the Alfred and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People's Show with Bick Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now for my favorite part of the show. What did I say? Talk to the audience. Oh, God, this is always dead. It's what we learn time. It's what we learn time. It's what we learn time. On the show. 8.34 on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer. Today we are in hour three of the program. It is what we learn time. Hour three is brought to you by Campbell & Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Trust the expertise of Campbell & Pound. Visit them on the internet at campbell-pound.com today. Okay, we still have some more business to attend to before we turn it over to the humanoids. Elon's going to take the helm here. He's got a what we learned. Elon, what did you learn over the last 72 hours? Yeah, I'll preface this by saying I'm a Bills fan, and it's really just how much of an upgrade Joe Brady is over Ken Dorsey. Bills fans, you know, we've been kind of demanding to see a consistent run game all year. Joe Brady puts together a masterclass performance. James Cook gets the ball over 200 yards. Josh Allen doesn't have to win the game playing hero ball. That's what we learned. So did you like, I didn't even realize that you were a Bills guy. And we were talking about them earlier in the show. So were you and the rest of Bills Mafia clamoring for them to get Cook the ball? Let Cook Cook. God, I said it. Fine, whatever. Uh, yeah, let James the, Cook. Yeah, was that the thing? Yeah, I mean, because Josh Allen, you know, as we've seen, he's got to play hero ball for them to win games. Right. Finally, it, we give James the ball. We get the win. Isn't that the problem sometimes when Josh Allen starts playing hero ball? They get so enamored with all of the things he can do. Mm-hmm. That's was that was Dorsey. The knock on Dorsey was that he was just so infatuated with everything that Allen can do. Right? He's six foot four. He can run it. He can throw. Yeah. He can make crazy throws. And I think, I think part of it was getting caught up in like the the bar between him and Mahomes. Mm-hmm. Right? Like look at all the great stuff that Patrick Mahomes is doing. Right? And then I think finally someone stepped in the adult in the room. And I guess uh, it's Joe Brady was like, hey, why don't we just try and play simple football? Was that their best win of the season? Against the, that had to be. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah. Because I know that the win against KC was huge for momentum, but that looked like the best win 
And also because the defense played so well and limited Prescott in that offense to 10, 10 points. I hope the uh, Eagles don't have the same uh, new coordinator bounce. Yeah, I know. I'm Is that a little a worried about I don't know. Well, <laughs> seriously, I mean, look at it. That's, the Matt, Matt Patricia defensive coordinator bounce. Like, I was listening to CBS on the way in this morning, and they were talking about it's not necessarily an ideal fit because – Patricia by trade historically has been more of a three four guy, mm-hmm. and Philly's more like that. They got that great uh, pass rush, right? right. The, yeah, the, yeah. the offensive, the defensive lineman. Sorry, but at the same time, they were saying like all you need to do right now to win over Eagles fans that are kind of irate is just go back to like be Buddy Ryan, just send blitzes constantly, mm-hmm. and just be like the most aggressive defense. It, you know what they really don't, want? Don't don't you wonder what ha- what was happening behind the scenes that a ten and three team made that change? Yeah, I think that um, Sirianni, and this was another thing they were talking about this morning, is Sirianni's a guy that really leans on his coordinators. Not like every head coach doesn't, but there's mm-hmm. some that will offer like almost complete autonomy to yeah. their coordinators. And that's, that's a double- what I do. I'd be like, defensive coordinator, you do all the defense. Offensive coordinator, you do all the offense. I'll be over here yeah, super- you're going, I'm supervising. Going for, I'm going for a steam. Like, you guys do your thing. <laughs> I'm going for a schwitz real quick. Now, the interesting comes the risk of, well, this is your department. Mm-hmm. Sanders, or whatever your name is. I don't know. Sanders. <laughs> Sanders. I just pulled Sanders. 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 This is your department. Why aren't we getting results? And it's like, oh. And then like, that's it. We're bringing in Patricia. That's how it works, right? I'm bringing in my mom? Yeah. No, Matt Patricia. <laughs> He's going to call the game. Anyway, good what we learned. Mook how that. A-Dog. You have some tickets to give away. You're going to make someone's holiday season very happy. Well, hold on. We got to print these out first. Oh, we, are we going to print it first? Yeah, yeah, I guess we should print, print it out, out first. Okay. Print out these submissions. Elon, you print. Fire up the dot matrix. A dog, you read, and then I'll do get fire plan. What we learned, ticket emoji. This season of giving, I would love to give my son the experience of watching a team like the Sharks, which embodies Christmas with all the goals it gives to other teams. Tyler. Congrats, Tyler. You're going to the game. We were just I, talking about I the hope Sharks the, at the break. I hope the Canucks absolutely pump the Sharks. You mean like 10 one? Yeah, like... Wow, I've never seen a team score 20 <laughs> goals against yeah, another yeah. team before. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> like, don't... Dude, just be mad about the fact that the last time these yeah. teams played, the Sharks actually won the game. Be furious about them and, ju- and just, like, show them what's what. That's a good point because the Sharks were clearly pissed off last game that they lost 10-1. They're like, we yeah. have to do better. Yeah. You know eight, how they like, say one. you should be respectful once you start running up the score? Like, yeah, don't. Gets, yeah, no. be, be very disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, it's awesome to be able to, like, actually have an expectation of that. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Last season, it would have been like, man, we got to play the Sharks. This yeah, is going to yeah, be yeah. bad for both teams. <laughs> uh, this is going to be the worst. You know what? San Jose has not played awful hockey lately. Dis- well, actually- they're playing with some pride. They're still, they're, they're, but they're talented. We, we said it at the break. The joke was like, David Quinn went to the team and was like, what if we just try <laughs> more than more, we are? More, yeah. more trying. That said, they got bombed in Colorado on, uh, last night. So yeah. that's not so good. Okay. Uh, it's time now for Humanoid Editions. Uh, what we learned are brought to you by Get Fire Plan. Protect what matters most with comprehensive fire safety plans, monthly audits, and risk mitigation at $200 off. Visit them at getfireplan.com. Our ticket winner is very happy. That's good. The other so, ticket winner, losers, as I like to call them, will not be as happy, but we're still going to read their What We Learns. So I'm going to read two What We Learns, and I think it represents the uh, polarizing opinions about number 40 on the Vancouver Canucks. First, Joe in New West. 
What we learned, people like to get bent like a pretzel to complain about Petey. If he doesn't show his dazzling deeks, he is somehow the fifth best player on the team. He is on the same point pace he was on last season. He will be more than worth what his next salary will be. If the Canucks don't pay $12 million average annual value for him, you can bet other teams will. Okay, so that's the support. You guys are too critical of Pete. Mm. Okay. Here's Robin Zuri with a very opposite one. What we learned, what I've learned, is that Elias Pettersson could go an entire month without a single point, and the local media and Canuck Nation would blame it on the coaching staff, his line mates, Tyler Myers, OEL, and Mike Matheson before they ever blamed it on him. Now, this is the, you guys are too soft on Petey. Mm-hmm. So the first text was, stop being so mean to Petey. Right. And the second text was, be more mean to Petey. So you've represented in the arguments more of Joe and New West's arguments in that you're kind of putting it on. You First of all, you think he's playing fine because his production is there. And second well, of all, you think it's more about on. his line mates. And I've been kind of like, yeah, I'm just not seeing the same things for him. I, I like a nuanced discussion. Well, right? then you're in the wrong business. I know. That's the thing. Is it's much easier just to do the polarizing thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here's a topic, and two guys are going to argue about it. <laughs> oh, man. This one is wearing a white suit, and this one is wearing a black suit. I mean, that's suit. sports like, radio <laughs> in the States in general. So. Spy versus spy. Um, no, like, I think that uh, the one thing that does jump out to me when we start talking about who's atop the NHL scoring leaderboard and who's atop the NHL salary leaderboard is the same names often come to the forefront, right? McDavid and McKinnon mm-hmm. and Matthews. Those are the three I usually like to use because they all play center. They're all elite. Yeah. They're all making 10 plus million a year. And they all have better running mates than Pedersen has right now. It's I, That's as plain as I can say it. Yeah. Right? I mean, again, it was... <laughs> Pew Suter and Ilya Mikheyev with what, PD. What, what, and actually that line, again, I mentioned this before, but the underlying numbers were very impressive for them. They did not give up anything against the Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, and that's great, right? And they, we, when we look at underlying numbers, you want to see things like that. But the reality of it is, is you're taking a converted 3C in Suter yeah. and moving him up. Kicking him to the wing, too. Right. You tried Kuzmenko and it wasn't working. Sam mm-hmm. Lafferty... Love the guy, but he's not an elite goal-scoring winger mm-hmm. to the degree of, well, McKinnon has Rantanen and McDavid has Dreisaitl. And I don't know. I take Lafferty over Dreisaitl. Yeah, you know? And you know? and Matthews has, I mean, take your pick, Nylander, Marner. Like, he's got a lot of guys that he yeah. can run with. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those things where you look at it and you're like, are we getting the full picture here? I think there's a consensus that if there's one thing the Canucks are needing right now, it's almost shifted from another defenseman to... Another top six winger. Yeah. I like, for example. And that is purely because Kuzmenko, for whatever reason, um, well, I can think of a lot of reasons, but he hasn't been the guy that he was last season, and Rick Talkin doesn't trust him. Well, they got to sign Sidney Crosby. That's the next step. Hey, how about Jake Gensel pending? Yeah, Jake Gensel. That's the one I was sure. thinking of. Way more realistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's carrying, he's got a no trade list, but basically you're going to Pittsburgh West, right? So why would you not want to come to Vancouver? Yeah. They're cooking. Um, I would worry a little bit. <laughs> they're not going to be able to afford all this. They got to, they got to pay Heronic. They got to play. I think, I, I think they Gensel, got to resign. I think it's just a rental if Pittsburgh falls out of it. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, like I would be worried long term because he's going to be thirty next year, yeah. Gensel. And I think mm-hmm. you might have already seen the best that Gensel's going to give you in terms of. He's goal a scoring. good player, though. 
I like him. He's a really I like him. I just I, there's a lot of tread on the tires now. Right? Uh, Cam from Abby with a what we learned. Brock Besser's season largely mirrors the team season. Everyone expected a bounce back from both. However, both have far exceeded those expectations. Uh, absolutely. Um, the I mean, I sometimes like I'm looking at the standings and I again remember how the Canucks have played at times over the last few years. They have been. Just not a serious hockey team. They are 21-9-2. Their goal differential is plus 41. They have 20 regulation wins, so that's the highest goal differential and the most regulation wins Mm -hmm. in the league. Uh, Tambo, an East fan, on that note. Remember we were asking people earlier, what the how are you watching games differently now? And I said I was trying to figure out exactly what they are as a team. Of course, Tambo hits the nail right on the head here. Hashtag WWO, what we've learned. What I've learned is that while the Canucks look to adhere to the talk at Staples, I'm adhering to the Staples of a hockey fan cheering for a good hockey team again. Fist forward on the couch when it's a close game in the third. Even lamenting losing an OT point two days after a game. I'm loving this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what I was looking for. Me too. You know what I'm doing this year? Actually watching the games. Yeah, I watched that. God, I watched that overtime and shootout against Minnesota. Like, I deserved (laughs) a bonus point for that. But what he's talking about with the Staples, I guess that's really it, is you know the framework of what the organization thinks they need to do to be a successful team. Do they tick the boxes night after night? But for me, it goes beyond that because I think I understand the ebbs and flows of a season that when some guys are either going to be down or slumping or hurt, you need, need, not would like, but you need someone to be able to step up. So with regards to like the third line right now, third line line has been huge. If the third line's not cooking right now, they might be in trouble right now. Or they're just, they're more closer to that 500 team that we saw over that 13 game stretch as opposed to one that's finding a way to generate points. On the blue line, if Zadorov doesn't come in, and really just eat the minutes and provide what he's doing. You're talking about um, having to probably extend Hughes and Heronic, and that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so I really like what they've got in terms of having options and versatility in terms of how we can beat you on a nightly basis. They're just a couple things away from where you look at them and you're like, okay, this could be a team that's dangerous, dangerous. Right. They're just not there yet. Marcus and Gibson's what we learned. I learned I need to check the Canucks calendar closer, the schedule closer after I miss both midday games over the weekend thanks to the early starts. Marcus, you know what? That's not good enough. Details. It's all in the details. Part of the staple. As a fan, Checking one of the, the schedule things, is a staple. One of the things you're responsible for is uh, you know, knowing when the games start. Actually, that's like the only thing. It's a non it's for. a non-negotiable. Uh, Thankfully we get back to some normal times here for a while. Uh, Jason texts in an interesting what we learned. I learned even NHL players are not immune to the perils of circadian disruption. Uh I am a health coach of 35 years. It is impossible to play even close to your physical potential, endurance, quickness, power, strength, timing, under the conditions which the Canucks were placed on the weekend. Beyond sleep inadequacy, the combination of the time zone shift and the matinee start made it impossible for them to be 100%. I know they're pros, but they're human. You cannot cheat physiology. They did very well to get three points. Yeah, I kind of... I didn't expect them to win in Minnesota. I actually thought that might be a real butt-kicking by the Minnesota Wild. I expected them to win in Chicago because Chicago is terrible. Um, so overall, 
they exceeded my expectations this weekend. Casey DeSmith has been such a good find mm-hmm. for this team because... Do you think the Wild are like, ah, Casey DeSmith? Well, I think the very interesting <laughs> thing about him is that they've run him out with uh, a, a couple bouts of frequency where they're like, okay, we're going to go to him with regularity. Mm-hmm. And he played well. And then they kept him on the shelf for almost two weeks and threw him in. Yep. And he played well. It's everything, like every box that you'd want to back up the tick so far, he's done it. Like, okay. He's only had like one or two kind of so-so outings this season, right? I, I think he's... The, the goals that he would want back, you could probably He was count, in there against San Jose, wasn't he, in the loss? Yeah, and but the goals that you would say you want back, maybe you could count on one hand. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just been really solid, but... I mean, I, I can't get over the fact that some people were okay with the idea of going into the season with Spencer Martin and Arthur Stilovs as, like, the tandem backup. I thought... I, I was like, this is crazy talk. So I'm so glad that Patrick Alvin pulled off that trade to get Casey to Smith. Spencer Martin might be on the move again, by the way. Uh, yeah. Freed brought him up over yeah. the weekend. I guess he's done reasonably well for Columbus. Well, where would he go, Carolina? Because Antti Ranta cleared waivers. Yep. Uh, that is a possibility. Like, uh, the funny thing is... is like Carolina's not- like, we're pretty cheap. We'll take him. Right. Martin's numbers stink. They're yeah. not great. Well, but Columbus Columbus stinks. stinks. But uh, you know who uh, got Nate Blast from the past? Carolina brought in Aaron Dell on a PTO this morning. Former San Jose Sharks goalie Aaron oh, Dell. I think I think I saw something on social media where Aaron Dell was like in a skate with Yeah. Was it was it Joe Thornton? Yeah, wearing Sharks gear. <laughs> and now he's going to the Carolina Hurricanes. Of all the guys to pick off the scrap heap, I'm surprised it was him. Uh Chris from Surrey, what we learned, I was painting my apartment on the weekend. During overtime against the Wild, I caught myself being more invested in painting the walls white. Then watching that sleep show of an overtime, I guess you can say that watching paint dry was more exciting than overtime. So there are two things that I'm wondering if the league is going to take action on. Number one is overtime. Okay. And there has been the discussion of some rule changes, like you can't skate the puck out of the offensive zone once you've gained that zone. I don't know if that will go anywhere, but clearly people are thinking about this stuff. The other one is hits from behind because there was another incident over the weekend and there was great disagreement about what the penalty should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Pasternak, I can't remember who he hit from Ryan behind. Lindgren. Ryan Lindgren. Of the Rangers. And then, so he got a five in a game. Yeah, and no got, supplemental but, discipline. But, no, but, but Bruins coach uh, Montgomery was, <laughs> Coach Montgomery, it's like Mr. Burns or something. <laughs> um, he, was, he was saying that uh, like it should have just been a two-minute minor. Yeah. Right. Well, nobody if, knows. Nobody knows. They're like, ah, is that nothing? Is it no. two minute minor? Is it a? Is it five in a game? Is it? Is it a six game suspension? Well, and I was, like, what are we doing here? I was listening to a particular analyst who used to play defense for the uh, Vancouver Canucks, not Kevin Bieksa, and he was calling for a suspension right away. So it just goes to show, like you've got two pretty vested hockey people in Montgomery and mm. this particular analyst on a particular network. Do you think Jim Montgomery might have been biased though, because he was the, the coach of the Bruins? Potentially. <laughs> Who's to say, though? Uh, <laughs> I, I just wonder if that's going to come up, this this hitting from behind, because we seem to have this, like, nobody knows. It is a complicated issue, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are players, there are defensemen that, even though they put themselves in a really dangerous position, um, they will turn their back. But And some of it is to draw a penalty, but most of it is, like, to protect the puck. Like, how else are you supposed to protect the puck? I don't know about you, but... My stick handling with my arms behind my back isn't very good, it's right? Tough. Like, so if you're trying, you know it's what very I mean? Difficult. Like, like you, that's the way you have to turn sometimes. But I think they're talking you, about the last second turn, though. 
Like maybe yeah. if you're going to protect the puck, don't turn like the nanosecond before a guy's trying to initiate contact. I don't know. But that's what it seems to be the biggest argument is like there's guys that are very clearly you're know, like, whoop, time to turn. These are all the unintended. Can, yeah. Who was it was making a point about that? I'm trying to remember now, but it was a good one. Like players these days don't know how to take a hit. Like they're not being taught properly to take a hit well. Mm-hmm. And they're Merrick. leaving themselves in vulnerable positions. Maybe it was Merrick. Yeah. And not to say that that excuses the bad hits, because the bad hits are still bad hits, but but the onus is also on the player to protect themselves. Yeah. And sometimes guys wow. don't protect themselves. This debate was actually raging in the NFL this weekend because, I don't know if you saw the game on... Uh, oh, it was the uh, Steelers-Colts game. and Michael. I did not tune in for that. Did you see this? Michael Pittman laid out to try and make a catch. And, God, who was the DB for the Steelers? Uh, Kaze? Anyway, he just unloaded on him. And if you watch the replay, Pittman stretched out and is in probably in, like, the most vulnerable position a human being can be in. He's mm-hmm. parallel with the ground, in the air, arms extended. You could hit any part of his body, and it was open, like, open season, right? Yeah. And, boy, let me tell you... Uh, the Steelers defender sure took advantage of that, right? Like he, and he just crunched him. And so it got this great debate. It's like, well, there's an offensive player who's throwing his body into the most vulnerable position. Do we reward the player for doing that? Because it's almost like there's no sense of self safety at that point. It was Torts per a couple textures, but that's oh, who was I was thinking. Yeah, Torts was talking about it. That's anyway, what I was thinking about. Um, go look up the hit if you want. You can decide on it. I did want to read this one. Hashtag WWO, what we learned. And it just said Zadorov at first, but then they followed up. Uh, all I see Zadorov doing so far is fighting for the guys out there, which is great to see. Yeah, there's another one. Like, talk about a guy who gets acquired knows what he has to do and wants to endear himself to teammates. Like, he's fought twice now. He fought Maroon, mm-hmm. right? And then he fought Reese Johnson. Noted rat Reese Johnson. God, and yeah. again, that was it. It was... And I, I, we had so many different people on Twitter kind of trying to have this galaxy brain debate about you can't give up an opportunity to a team like that with an instigator penalty. You can in the regular season with a two-goal lead against I, Against Chicago. a nine-win Chicago yeah. team. I feel yeah. like you can roll the dice on that one. Because you know what? The end game is going to be sticking up for PD and showing yourself what you're made of and what you're about and what mm-hmm. you want to be about is worth far more than whatever risk you take against wow. a lowly Chicago Blackhawks. Here, here, sir. Yeah, so good on you, Zadorov. Keep beating people up, especially <laughs> Patrick Maroon. Okay, uh, we got to get out of here for today, but we will be back tomorrow and then Wednesday, and then we're out of here for Christmas break. Uh, signing off, I have been Mike Alford. He's been Jason Bruff. He's been A-Dog. He's been producer Elon. This has been the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.